Are you running short of gift ideas for the approaching holiday season? Consider giving a paperback copy of The Sheila Stories, a novel of adventure and romance that is sure to warm the reader's heart. The Sheila Stories is available on Amazon. Welcome to the Sheila Stories, which relate the life of an Australian woman in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. I'm Pat Kelly, your host and storyteller. Now, to get us all back up to speed, in the last episode we heard the story Off Script, in which Sheila learned from her friend Kate Orenstein that Jessie was having an affair with an actress in Hollywood. In today's episode, we will hear the story Cold, in which Sheila will struggle to endure a harsh winter in Cape May and will meet a fellow year-rounder named Dot Flag. Cold Over the holidays, visitors came to Cape May and for a few weeks the town was partly occupied. Not as busy as at the height of summer, but still, on sunny days people walked on the beach, the bars and restaurants had customers, and the inns and hotels were brightly lit to convey conviviality. But by the 5th of January, the visitors had gone away, and the snow came to fill the void. It snowed and snowed. One storm left 12 inches, the next another 10. The storms were followed by gray days and flurries, and by mid-month, two feet of snow blanketed the ground. After a week of being cooped up in the house, Sheila grew desperate for the outdoors. One morning the sun shone and the temperature dropped into the teens. She strapped on sturdy boots and ventured onto the porch. Everything was blindingly white, and she put on sunglasses. She wore two sweaters, gloves, a heavy scarf, and an overcoat, but the chill still managed to creep next to her skin. She bounced on her toes and waded into the snowdrift, determined to take a walk. The snow was pristine. Not even a bird's tracks marred the smooth surface. The snow lay piled high on the power lines and the branches of trees. The air was still. She listened to the quiet. It reminded her of certain mornings in Darling Downs. She trudged down the middle of Franklin Street until she reached Kearney, then turned left. The little houses were buried in snow, closed tight for the winter. The snow was like powder, and the freezing air kept it from melting so her feet stayed dry inside her thick woolen socks. She reached the intersection with Jefferson, and the surf crashed in the distance. Her heart pumped faster. At Beach Avenue, she climbed steps to the boardwalk and found that snow had disguised the paths across the dunes. Which way to turn? She closed her eyes to recall the terrain. A truck plowed past on the street and honked its horn. She waved. By the looks of the tracks, one other person had made it to the beach, and she followed in their footsteps. 
She crested the dune, and cold wind blasted her face. It blew from the southeast across the gray waves. The salt spray from high tide had mixed with the snow to create a hard surface above the sand. Her boots crunched through the layer of ice. She had never seen snow on a sandy beach. The bright white stretched endlessly in both directions. Nearing the surf, she paused to watch the waves. The exercise had warmed her chest and arms and legs, but inside she felt cold and empty and forgotten. She had lost a second husband, not to war this time, not to death, but he was gone just the same. She could call him and he would talk to her. She could write to him and he would write back, but she couldn't touch him. She couldn't kiss him. She couldn't dream about their future about the children they would raise together. She blinked hard against the wind. It was strange to think that far south from this point at the tip of South America, this water connected to the Pacific Ocean. And thousands of miles from there, the water, now warmed by the sun, crashed against the shore of Manly Beach. Perhaps she should close the house, lock the doors, bar the windows, and run home to her family. Give up on America. It had only been an experiment, a relatively short one at that, an opportunity to experience another way humans hurt one another. The sun at Manly Beach would be kind to her. She took a step toward the surf and another and kept walking until the water covered her boots. When the icy liquid seeped into her socks, it took her breath away and she stopped. Once, as a child, she had asked her mother why bad things happened to people. That's life, her mother had said. Life often challenges you, but you can never give up, Sheila. Never give up. Returning to Sydney now reeked of capitulation. No, that's not right. I can't do that. She might lose the game, but she would never stop trying. Her wet boots collected snow and sand on the slog back to the dunes. By the time she reached Beach Avenue, her feet had turned numb and were clumsy blocks of ice. She forced her legs to keep moving and followed the tracks she'd made on the way to the beach. Halfway back to her house, she wanted to lie down and take a nap. She searched the snow-covered cottages for signs of life, someone to help her but the windows were all dark. Everyone had left Cape May. She willed herself to take one more step, and then another, worried now about her toes. She'd never seen frostbite. Surely it must feel like this, biting cold fading to numbness. She beat her arms against chest and legs. Keep moving. One more step. Exhausted, she reached the bend in Franklin and fell to the side, unable to move farther, her chest heaving. Rest now, just a few minutes. Jesse would come soon to rescue her. He wouldn't leave her lying there. But why should he come? He had Mary, or some other beauty. They were at the beach now in Los Angeles, watching the waves. Or maybe they were surfing. Yes, 
surfing. Why would he leave that to come here where it was cold? She should go to him. She was going to him. She felt the warmth on her skin. Why? Why did she feel warm? Stop it. Wake up. You're nearly home. She lifted her head and saw her house a couple hundred yards away. You can do it. Brush the snow from your face. Climb from the bank. Take one more step. It took 30 agonizing minutes to close the gap. She crawled up the stairs. With shaking hands, she turned the knob and collapsed to the floor inside. Her feet. She couldn't feel her feet. She knocked them against the floor to free the ice and snow. She beat her hands together and made fists until her fingers moved. She rustled with the laces of her boots. No luck. They were encased in ice. On hands and knees, she willed herself to the kitchen and dragged her body up the counter to the sink. She filled a glass with water and poured it over the top of her boots, then repeated the process until the ice melted, freeing the laces. She untied the boots, tossed them to the side, and peeled off her long, icy socks. Her feet were an angry reddish purple. She massaged them with her hands, but there was no sensation, nothing at all. She hyperventilated. Her heart thrashed against her ears. Her feet were gone. She hauled herself onto the counter, knocking a glass to the floor. She put the stopper in and turned the water on full. Dipping her feet into the sink, she continued to massage them. Wake up, damn you, wake up. Finally, something. The slightest tingle in her heels. She laughed but kept massaging, pressing the fleshy part of her instep, gently pushing her toes back and forth, one by one. The tingling increased and turned into seething heat that shot jolts of electricity into her calves. The tap water was boiling oil. She lifted her feet from the sink, let them cool in the air, and lowered them in the water again. With her butt on the counter and her feet dangling over the sink, she worked for an hour. Slowly, her skin turned a light shade of red and then pink and finally something close to her normal skin tone. Weary, she crawled on hands and knees to her bedroom and climbed beneath the blankets. Her feet grew warmer, almost normal, and she drifted off to sleep. The next day, the sun continued to shine, the temperature rose into the 40s, and the snow began to melt. Her feet retained a light pink tinge, but she could feel all of her toes, and everything functioned as it should. She crept on aching feet and didn't try to do too much. At the kitchen table, she made a list of tasks to be completed before the spring arrived. The basement demanded a thorough scrubbing. The windows needed washing, and the rugs required a solid beating to free them of last summer's sand. She had ten weeks until she opened the inn. The work would keep her hands busy, but what would she do for company? The weather had improved but the gray clouds would return and bring more snow, more dark moods. A knock came at the front door. Who on earth? 
Did she imagine the sound? No one had visited the house since the last holiday guest left. Something moved behind the glass of the door. She stood so fast she knocked over her chair. How did she look? Dumb question. In baggy pants and an old sweater, with her hair barely combed, she looked like crap, but there was no time to fix it. She needn't have worried, for the woman on her doorstep was no beauty queen. She stood about five feet, was thick around the middle, and wore a big puffy coat, heavy boots, and a wool cap pulled down over her ears. Her nose was a bright pink bulb and her eyes a twinkly blue. Good morning, dear. Sheila's tongue felt thick. She hadn't spoken to anyone in two weeks. Yes, good day. The woman's eyes popped wide. What a lovely accent. Um, thank you. You're welcome. I'm Dot Flagg, and I've come to welcome you to the Year Rounders Club. The what? The Year Rounders Club. Dot paused and peered past her into the sitting room. Please, come in. My name is Sheila Wright. Thank you, said Dot. Once inside, Dot pulled off her cap, quickly scanned the room, and continued with her spiel. I would have come sooner, but frankly, I didn't know you were here. After New Year's, most of the owners hightail it for the big city or warmer climbs. Deep winter is often bleak at the beach. Only a few dozen of us stay on straight through. I see, said Sheila. The year-rounders. Yes. Anyway, I was reading last night when the phone rings. It's Tony Santucci. Dot, he says, have you been around to welcome the owner of the new inn on Franklin? Well... I was clueless and told him as much. Of course she's there, he says. The lights go on at night and come off in the morning. Do you think it's a ghost? So I told Tony I'd get over here first thing this morning. And here I am. A lightness filled Sheila's chest. I'm happy to meet you, she said. We year-rounders have to stick together. Winters here can drive a sane person mad. Dot inspected her closely. You're not crazy, are you? I've had my moments, said Sheila. Forget about all that now. Dot pulled a piece of paper from her coat. Here's a list of the year-rounders with their phone numbers. You must phone each person to introduce yourself, and you must come to our party on Saturday. We celebrate the passing of each storm. I'll warn you, Tony sometimes drinks too much at these parties, and we have to walk him home. She shrugged. But he's harmless. Sheila giggled. It sounds fantastic. Then it's all settled, said Dot. Would you like a cup of tea or something, said Sheila. I have some coffee brewed. I never decline coffee. I'll just turn on the stove. Come into the kitchen. Are you British? No, Australian. How on earth did you come to be here? It's rather a long story. I have weeks to listen, dear. In no time, she'd met all the year-rounders, and they got her through the winter. They loved to hear her stories of Sydney and surfing and raising sheep in Queensland. In the spring, she reopened the inn. Traffic was light in April and May, but picked up in June. There was always something to do. Buy groceries, maintain the house, tend the garden, and write letters to prospective and departed guests. 
Despite her workload, she found time every day for a long walk. After dinner, as the sun faded, she liked to explore the shops on Washington Street. A few of the owners were year-rounders, but most came and went with the summer. In mid-June, she perused the window of a souvenir shop. The owner had decorated the place with beach paraphernalia. Bright umbrellas and chairs, big colorful hats, even a diver's helmet. She peered through the window. What? Wow! She marched in and stared at the wall behind the counter. The man at the register looked up from his book. He was middle-aged, nearly bald, and wore glasses. Where did you get that? she demanded. He glanced at the wall. It's a surfboard. I know what it is. Where did you get it? He bit his lip. Uh, New York City? I found it in an artsy place and thought it would look good in the shop. Paid $10 for it. I need that surfboard, she said. People don't surf here. It's a California thing. Hawaii, places like that. Don't believe that rubbish. I can surf any wave. I want to buy it. It's not for sale. I'll give you 50 bucks, she said. He blinked, swallowed, and said, Okay. Sheila rose with the sun and drove to the western edge of the beach. She'd had her eye on those waves for years. She had watched the surf break at high tide, low tide, and in good weather and bad. The waves didn't break as long as they did in Surfer's Paradise, but they broke steady. She parked at the far end of Beach Avenue and hauled the surfboard from the bed of her truck. Seagulls squawked as she crossed the beach. The water was chilly against her legs, but she scarcely noticed. Her heart beat like a marching band's drum. She hurried, taking giant strides to get to deeper water. She lunged onto the board, paddled past the surf break, and sat on top. A freighter had steamed past the cape and headed into the ocean. A sailboat leaned with the wind. She paddled to where the waves rose and fell, and then waited, her breath coming faster. There, not the perfect wave, but a good wave, like a thousand other waves breaking that day, and the next, and the next. She waited for the right moment. The wave began to crest. She paddled once more, grabbed the sides of the board, and leaped to her feet. And then she was shooting forward, the wave carrying the board, with her hands out for balance and pure joy on her face. What an ass I've been. I'm sitting on the porch holding my cell phone. I think of Sheila wading into the ocean, the freezing water seeping into her boots, and her struggle to clomp through the snow back to her house. She had lost two husbands. Both times she moved on with her life. And yet here I sit, seven years after Julie's death, frozen in the same spot, alone. I pull up our text log on the screen of my phone. Her last message, got it, back soon, is from a month ago. She was at the grocery store and had asked if we needed anything. A half gallon of milk, please. 
My fingers type a new message. You left something here at the house. Two things, actually. I put the phone down, trying to forget about it, but my ears yearn to hear the ding. I wait. Crickets fill the night air. Has she deleted me already? Who could blame her? Finally, it comes. Give them to goodwill. It's better than no answer at all. Engage, engage. All engines ahead full. They're far too valuable. If I could see her now, what would her face show? Frustration? Irritation? Curiosity? Can't imagine what that would be. My fingers fly across the keys. Two disappointed girls. I don't expect an answer. I hope my reference to the girls, truthful as it is, will warm her heart for what I type next. Can we talk it out? Hastily, I add. I don't want to lose you. Now I wait. It's her move. She could end the exchange now. You never had me. It's better than a no. I rush to reply. Meet me, please. I don't want our relationship to end this way. Little dots flash on the screen for what seems like minutes. It's funny you use the word relationship. It means many different things. I detect a touch of humor in her response. Or perhaps I'm dreaming. Advance, advance. Never give up. Can I take that as a yes? Continental Tavern at five tomorrow? My breath crawls and my heart thunders like a herd on the move. I count the rails on the porch. Forty-three from end to end. Still no answer. Has she tossed the phone to the side? Moved on to something better? Baking a cake? Paying bills? But no, she hasn't moved on. She's carefully composed her three-letter answer. Yes. The Continental Tavern sits at the corner of Afton and Main in Yardley. A favorite of locals, the alehouse sports a 19th century look and serves tasty fare with a hearty smile. Traffic is light on the two-lane roads. A small park adorned with weeping willows and a lake lies within a stone's throw. It's early, and I manage to get a table for two on the wooden porch outside. I feel out of place in the bucolic setting. Is that her car? No, it's a Honda. I rub my chin and scratch the back of my neck. Stretching my legs, I cross one over the other and then reverse them. Be still. My mouth is dry, and I reach for the water glass. Don't drink too much. All morning, I tried to arrange a playdate or a babysitter for the girls, without success. They sit at their own table farther down the porch. Their presence makes me even more nervous. I ask them for some space, bribe them with instructions to order whatever they wished. That got them excited. They scour the menu. It's ten past five. Where is she? Did she change her mind? I strain my neck. There, her Hyundai. I resist the urge to run to the parking lot. The girls study the menu and debate how to maximize their good fortune. And then she strides toward the porch. Inside my chest, the herd continues to charge. Her hair, a mountain of curls, takes my breath away.
She pauses at the foot of the stairs, her lips closed, her eyes uncertain. I rush to where the stairs come onto the porch, trying my best to smile naturally. She shakes her head when she sees me, unsure of why she has come. Natalie sees Chris and shouts. She and April come running, and the three of them engage in a cheerful reunion, leaving me at the top of the stairs, my hands twisting each other so hard I could break a finger. Of course, the girls want us all to sit together. With hasty and awkward words, I compel them to return to their table so Chris and I can have some time alone. They do so reluctantly and commence frequently glancing at our table. Chris sits and lays her purse to one side. I drink her in. The light makeup on her face, her beautifully shaped eyebrows, her mauve nail polish, and her lips, which are still not smiling. I thank her for coming and tell her I'm happy to see her. Why did you bring the girls, she says with another shake of her head. I might call it a cheap trick, but I have no idea why you asked to meet. I couldn't find a babysitter. Her face and neck are tense, and her eyes are hard. She's had a lot of time to think about me, about us, about how we separated. I fear time has doomed my quest. You should have asked your new tenant, she says. I'm sure he or she would have obliged. I don't have a new tenant. Some of the heat dissipates from her face. That's surprising. Surely someone has shown an interest. Maybe they all had dogs. I haven't listed it. Why not? You're so good at checking off to-do lists. Is she trying to insult me? Her nearness distracts me, scatters my carefully planned words to the far corners of my mind. I, uh, uh, I mentalist it, but, but I never seem to find the time. My throat constricts, and I reach for the water glass again. She waits, mercy creeping onto her face. The truth is, I've kept it empty on the off chance she might come back. Why would I do that? What does she want me to say? Should I get on my knees? Would that help? She rescues me by saying, I can think of only one reason to come back. Living with my parents kind of sucks. I don't know who's more frustrated with the situation, them or me, but I'm pretty sure it's them. I... I shift my weight in the chair. Her eyes have locked onto mine. I can't look away. You could have had me, she says. I've been a fool. I'm not that bad of a catch. The catch of the century. I have certain skills. Innumerable skills. I can bake. Better than the goddess of cake and cookies. And I can dance. If only you could teach me. The banter is over. The humor vanishes from her face as quickly as it came. Anger is threatening again. Damn it, Chris, I say. Give me another chance. For what, she says, shrugging. Her lip curls. Friendship? I reach across the table to touch the back of her hand. Her hand clasps mine. Tingles run up my arm. I'll settle for friendship, I say but I have hopes for more. Her face slowly changes. Forgiveness flashes, and then, at last, 
Her beautiful smile returns. When can I move in? Okay, that's the end of the episode, Cold, and we've covered a lot of ground. So now, to balance the sadness of the last story, this is a happy story on two different dimensions. Sheila has lost Jesse, but she has found the year-rounders, a community, and they have helped her through the winter. And then in the summer, what a great surprise. She finds a surfboard doing time as a decoration on the wall of a souvenir shop, and she liberates it. Now she has everything she needs to be happy. Work, friends, and surfing. And then in Thomas's world, he finally realizes that he is the problem, not his wife. In the last episode, Thomas admitted to himself that he had been trying to keep Julie alive with his monk-like stance against the world, and he knew this was a mission that Julie would never have approved. And now, after Sheila once again picks herself up and carries on with her life, he realizes he must try to get Chris to come back, and he succeeds, and that feels good. Now, for Sheila, a pivotal moment in the story is when she finds that surfboard in a souvenir shop on Washington Street. Now, Washington Street is a real street, no question about that. And you can find lots of great souvenirs there. But what about surfing in Cape May? Today, there are a lot of people in Cape May who'd love to surf. But what about back when, when this story took place? I got curious and did a little research on that subject. Bottom line, my research was inconclusive. When Sheila first surfs in Cape May, the year is 1950. Now, clearly, by the 60s, surfing had arrived and was in full swing on the beaches of New Jersey. And it's possible that a few people, like Sheila, started surfing there earlier, say in the 50s, and that it took a few years to really catch on. We may never know. In the next episode, we will hear the story Patience, in which Sheila will teach Flossie Parker's children, Freddie, Abby, and Peggy, how to fish. Now, I'd like to take a moment to promote my writing, if I may. The end-of-the-year holidays are fast approaching, and you'll want to buy gifts for your friends and family. If you're struggling to find just the right present for your family member or friend, think about getting them a paperback copy of the Sheila stories. It is certain to warm their hearts. The novel has received excellent reviews on Amazon. Here's what one reviewer had to say. I enjoyed every word and had difficulty putting the book down. Great characters and a wonderful glimpse into Australian history. Another reviewer called the novel a charming, heartwarming story sure to enchant young readers. You can find the book on Amazon by searching for The Sheila Stories by Patrick Kelly. On today's episode, we had music by Cinemedia and sound effects by Noise Creations and Zapsplat.com. Thank you, friends. I'll be back soon. Bye now.